Heavenly Father, do please help us today. May we read, may we grasp, may we appreciate, enjoy, and practice what we read in your word. For your glory we pray. Amen. Well, Sarah and I were returning uh, from Sheffield. We picked up Zach from camp. And there we were, normally listening to Radio 2, but then, I know, you can make comment about Radio 2 later on if you like. Um, but there we were. Bob Harris came along country. I can't stand country music, so off we went to Radio 4. And at that point, there was a, a little program about s- good summer reads. What are you going to take on holiday with you? Okay? Uh, you know, while you're lounging in the sun. And then I came to my, came to my thinking was, how would a book of Judges, how would the book of Judges be reviewed in such a programme? It certainly is a, bit, a kind of a gripping t- page turner, isn't it? There's loads of action. There's murder, there's war, there's strategy in war as well. There's unusual deaths. If you remember back in chapter 3, one man is killed with a sword, so fat is he that the sword is somewhat submerged into his belly. One man dies through a tent peg being ploughed through his eye socket and into his brain. Um, you know, today, if judges were to release onto the market, there'd be one of those stickers, wouldn't there, on the front? which would probably say caution or parental advisor, you know, whatever, it, you know, one of those warning signs. Well, this is the penultimate talk of our series, looking through the book of Judges, but why bother? This is a sordid piece of Israel's history. We're in that period of history, I don't know if you recognise it, between the leaders of God's people, Moses and Joshua, Joshua have taken God's people into the promised land, and then before the time of the first appointed king, that is of Saul. The book contains a story, as I mentioned, of 12 judges. They're God's appointed leaders. Literally, they are the, the deliverers of God's people. I don't know if you remember the 12. There's not going to be a test. But the 12 may have come from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. We're not totally sure, but that may be the case. Only five of the judges get a real kind of mention, if you like. If you remember back in chapter 3, it begins with Othniel. We get a few sentences about him. At the end of that chapter, we get one sentence on a man called Shamgar. And in in between those two, you get Ehud, who's the left-handed, right-hand man of God. Because he's a Benjaminite, the right-hand men of God. He was the one that killed the very fat king, Eglon. Then you get to chapter 4, you get Deborah, the prophetess. With the help of Barak, uh, Balak, sorry, um, he took down the uh, enemies of God at that point, which is the Canaanites. Chapter 6, 7 and 8, you get Gideon, very well known. And he took down the Midianites with the help of God. With just 300 men, not an army, 300 men. Chapter 9, Abimelech, not a judge, as not given by God, but a bloodthirsty leader, who thankfully didn't last very long. Then you get to chapter 10, and there's Tola and Jair, uh, but we're mainly introduced to Jephthah, who we looked at last week. What do we learn about him? He had all the words, very skilled, and yet he had no heart for God or God's will. A very sobering warning to some of us, I'm sure. At the end of um, chapter 12, there's Ibsan and Elon and Abdon. We haven't looked at them, just a sentence each. But chapter 13 begins with the best known of them all, Samson. His name is synonymous with great strength and great hair. No comments, please. If you do uh, Google him, 
uh, Google the name, you get endless hair products today. And also, luggage bears his name, Samsonite, because the first, uh, the owner of Samsonite, he called his first trunk when went to college in America, Samson, and started a luggage company as a result. Each person that God had raised up as a judge was inappropriate for the task. They were ordinary people, but the book essentially is not about them. They're the subplot line, if you like. The dominant and powerful, loving, gracious lead character is God himself. So three things, I think, about the book generally as a whole. It's comforting. It's comforting simply because we see God using people like you and me in his sovereign plans. Ungodly people, weak people, people who make mistakes. So it's comforting, sobering as well because we see the fallen nature of people again like you and me. Again and again and again through the book we see their nature coming out as they spiral out of control, rejecting God and his rule through his word. It's comforting, it's sobering, but it's also amazing as well. It's amazing because it's a story about God's amazing grace that is poured out as he intervenes in his people's lives, bringing saviour after saviour, deliverer after deliverer, God is the lead character as he graciously works amongst his people. A people that have rejected him again and again. And it's that rejection that is the beginning of our chapter again in chapter 13. Why don't you cast your eyes down, verse 11, verse 1, sorry, of chapter 13. If you've been here week on week, uh, you will have sort of, you've got bored of this line, won't you? It is the refrain, sadly, of the whole book. Look at verse 1. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands now of the Philistines for 40 years. It's a cycle. Worse than that, it's a spiral downwards. The Israelites did evil. Notice it's not in their eyes. I've said that every week. Simply because they might have thought that they're doing a great job. They're living lives. They're not harming anyone. They're living peaceably with everyone else. They're fine. But they're doing evil in the eyes of God, on the plumb line of God's word. So God justly, fairly, and even lovingly disciplines them, handing them over to the Philistines for 40 years. And God's people are now in the toughest spot that they ever found themselves. Just imagine, if you can, living in or being submersed into a pagan culture, a completely pagan culture, for 40 years. That's since 1974. Now, you may not think that we're far from that. And you may be right. And if you are right, then listen in. Because this has got a lot to teach us. So the people had turned their backs on God and they were now in the hands of the Philistines. But I don't know if you remember, as we've gone through, there's this cycle, isn't there? There's uh, the sin, people have turned their backs on God. And then what happens? There's a raider. God sends in someone, this time the Philistines. Then what happens? There's a cry. There's no cry. There's no cry. It's distinct from any other time before in this book. In fact, they don't seem to be bothered at all. 
The Philistines rule over them. They ruled the land and they lived amongst God's people. The occupation of the land, though, seems utterly peaceful. They're not worried at all. It seemed like a fact of life. If you see in chapter 15, verse 11, it's actually the people of God who want to kind of sort out the problem because uh, Samson seems to be a, a kind of a, a, a national embarrassment. They just want peace with the Philistines rather than peace with God. Samson himself thought nothing of marrying a Philistine woman. It showed that the people were virtually unconscious of the fact that they were slaves under the people of the Philistines. Uh, By that, uh, they they really just culturally accommodated themselves to the Philistine way. Cultural accommodation is simply when you you, you adapt the values, the morals, the the idols of the people around you. And the people of God, they've just given up, trying to be distinct as God's people in God's world. It's a very dangerous place to be, isn't it? There's no repentance, there's no remorse, no prayer goes up. The people of God are in an absolutely hopeless place here. So hopeless that now God intervenes. And he uses a woman in chapter 13. And in that culture at that time, that would have brought a terrible shame to God's people. Essentially that God might choose a woman to, to sort the situation out, if you like. And notice she's a childless woman. A hopeless woman, because of her childlessness, and she's also a nameless woman. You see that at the beginning of chapter 13, if you cast your eyes down there. And the point is of that, is that this rescue will be God's work. He's going to take the initiative, because he has the power. And I guess if we look at ourselves at that point, we have to recognise the hopelessness that we see God's people in here is not so different to us. We too are hopeless, but thanks be to God, as Paul puts it, that though we were dead in our sins, we've now been made alive through Jesus Christ. Please, 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 when you read texts like this, do not be so arrogant as to kind of look down your noses and think, oh, we're distinct from those people there. Without the gracious intervention of the Lord Jesus Christ, where would any of us be? So we get to chapter 13, but why do we have a whole chapter dedicated, what essentially is to the birth of Samson? A chapter with Samson's parents talking to an angel of the Lord. You know, what's going on here? Well, the point is, God is breaking the silence. They've been under Philistine rule, they've forgotten God, but now God is graciously intervening amongst his people. Samson's father and mother, through this exciting and as they see, quite nerve-wracking as well, conversation. They now know there is a God who speaks. That there's a God who's willing to come amongst them, to intervene into their lives, to save them and talk with them. So we get to our first point there. And we, at Samson's birth, I guess the story is marked with, uh, it's trembling at the word of God. As you guessed, we've we've not got time to go through all of this uh, in any detail. Uh, Four chapters. What I intend to do is this. I will quickly summarise the passage. And I mean just in a couple of sentences. The kind of what's going on, if you like. And then I'll try and look at perhaps some of the surprises, all the main points. So then we can apply it. It's going to be very quick. So do bear with me if I can. 
Chapter 13, brief summary. Follow through the text. I'll point out a few verses if I can. Manoah, Samson's dad. Nameless wife. Can't have children, we see in verse 2. So an angel of the Lord appears to them and tells them they can have a son. But importantly, gives instructions because he's going to be set apart for God. The son is. That is, he's going to be a Nazarite. If you want to know more about that, look in Numbers chapter 6. So they make an offering to God after their long conversation. They make an offering to God in thanks. They wanted to make it to the angel, but they make it to God. Angel disappears. Then the magnitude of the whole encounter kind of strikes Manoah, really. And he's frightened. He says they're doomed to die in verse 22. They calm down. Samson comes along. He grows up. And we see at the end of chapter 13 that he is blessed. That the Spirit of God begins to come upon him as God's plan unveils itself. So that is what happens in chapter 13. But why is this conversation so long, so drawn out, given that some, some of the judges themselves only get one verse in the whole of the book? Now Manoah, Samson's dad, with his nameless wife, get a whole chapter regarding his birth, Samson's birth. Just look at verse 8, for example, if you can, of chapter 13. Why is Manoah uh, begging in his prayer for more time with the angel? Verse 12, why is Manoah asking with such detail about Samson's life being a Nazarite? In verse 17, why is he wanting to know how to honour God's angel? You see, all these details are here for a very important reason. They're there to show us that Manoah, if you like, is normal. It's totally normal. That is, he's reacting to God and God's intervention amongst his people as anyone should react to God, reverently, appreciatively, carefully, appropriately. See, God's people, they've been under Philistine rule for all these years, culturally accommodating, moving further and further and further away from God. But here, they start to listen. There's an element of shame for God's people, though, here, because Manoah gets the word secondhand from his wife. But Manoah prays. He seeks more from God, humbly, humbly wanting to do the right thing. Look at verse 17. He even begins to want to relate to God. There's that relational aspect where he, he wants to know the name of the angel so he can honour him. But, but why do we need to see all of this? I think the reason is this, at its most simple, if you like, because what we're about to see in Samson is the exact opposite. You see, Manoah is a man who, in the presence of God's word, trembles. He's humble and he's prayerful. Samson, on the other hand, as we'll see in the following chapters, is a man who, in the presence of God's word, as we're going to show in a few moments, he tramples on it. He has no care. He thinks only of himself and his gain. See, the contrast is stark, and it's purposely, I think, put there. There's this contrast between Man Manoah and Samson, his son. But Manoah is here at such length in chapter 13 simply because he's the normal, sensible model of coming towards God's word. We certainly can't take a lead on Samson on that one. So Manoah is a good place to look. 
But I guess, just to apply that very briefly, think like this. Who are you most like with regard to how you view and appreciate God's word? Are you more like Manoah? Or are you more like Samson? How do you come to God's word? You know, maybe in your quiet times, maybe here at church. Do you remember seeing those pictures a couple of weeks ago with the Makondi tribe down in, down in Africa as they received for the first time a whole New Testament? They had rat kebabs to celebrate. There were smiles. There's joy. What a privilege to hear God speak. But what about us? When you hear God's word, how do you respond? If you're like me, I guess at times you'll be hard-hearted. You'll be a little bit stubborn maybe. You'll be amazed that you can hear something and you'll know the blessing that you'll say, I really want to apply that to my life. And then just a few moments later, maybe a couple of hours later, you're immediately disobedient. Have you ever heard something really clearly and you've decided, you may have even written down in some notes and you said, I am going to live like this. I'm going to do this to honour God because of what he's done for me in Christ. And then just after a few moments, you switch off. That was point one of the talk. I can't get to point four. That's just enough for me. Thank you very much. That was a warning, by the way. Have you ever been sobered by God's word and then been all casual about it in conversation? You don't want to appear too fundamental and too kind of boring, do you? Who are you most like? Manoah or Samson? I guess that's one of the main points of uh, that chapter. But note how the chapter ends. The spirit of the Lord began to stir Samson right there at the end while he was in that place that I struggled to pronounce. See, despite of what Samson will do and who he will be, God in his sovereignty is beginning to raise up a deliverer. He is good to his word, even if Samson will not be. Samson is born and the deliverer is God blessed. We get to our second point now and we look at now at the at chapter 14 and the marriage. And here we see, I guess it's typified by the trampling of God's word. And we Begin to see that uh, through Samson. Brief summary to begin with. Okay, brief summary, chapter 14. Samson is born. The first thing we see at the beginning of uh, chapter 14 is what? He sees a Philistine woman and he literally says, she is right in my eyes. That is, forget what God thinks, she's right in my eyes. He wants her, so despite his father and mother protesting, they go and get this woman for Samson. As they travel, you get these amazing stories of a lion attacking, and he tears him apart with his bare hands, just as you tear apart a young goat. We all know what that's like, don't we? I love the way that writes that. And then when, you, when they go back, uh, when he goes back to, to marry the lady, uh, the, he goes back to the carcass, and there's a swarm of bees, and they made honey and so on. He scoops out the honey again, as a Nazarite, he couldn't go anywhere near a dead carcass. He's breaking all sorts of kind of rules here for his set apartness. At the wedding feast, he then Samson then tells him a riddle, essentially turning all the attention on himself and baiting the Philistine men, uh, the thirty men, as part of the wedding party. It all turns very ugly, doesn't it? As the chapter ends, and here begins the division between the Philistines and the Israelites, God's people. 
The chapter finishes after this horrible scene of slaughter with Samson going back to his father's house and his wife going off with another man. Now, why is Samson like this? Of all the judges in this book, if you like, if you look at Samson, he is the most flawed by far. He is an impulsive man, isn't he? You've seen that just in the two chapters we've heard read, but to be honest, chapter 16, it just gets a whole lot worse. His senses control him, totally. So you see that in, uh, in his violence, but most obviously in his complete lack of self-control, sexual self-control particularly. So he's an impulsive man. Secondly, he's an unteachable man. He ignores his father's will and his mother's will here in chapter 15. But most importantly, he ignores God's will for him as a Nazarite, set apart, consecrated man. He defiles every single rule that is put in front of him. But extraordinarily, the Spirit of the Lord still, firstly, stirs him up at the end of stirs um, him at the uh, end of chapter thirteen, and is upon him in chapter fourteen, verse six and verse nineteen. So although Samson may trample God's word by ignoring his Nazarite vow, God is not limited by his weakness and by his inappropriateness. Remember, God's people have been under the rule of the Philistines now for many years, but they were culturally indistinct and therefore spiritually becoming extinct. God is now raising up this judge, Samson, a deliverer who is totally useless, totally inappropriate, Totally powerless, especially in the presence of women. And yet God will sovereignly use this man and the circumstances of this chapter, even the failings of Samson, to bring about his purposes. See, God's main purpose, as sort of spelled out in chapter 14 and 13, is to bring this divide between the Philistines and his people. Some distinction, some set-apartness. So the situation with the Philistine woman is, is part of God's sovereign plan to confront the Philistines. He uses the weakness of Samson for his purposes. That doesn't take the responsibility away from Samson at all. It just shows, although Samson may not be interested in the rule of God, He can't do anything about the sovereign overruling of God. But why Samson? Two very quick things, if I can. Samson, I'll put them on your sheets there. He's a mirror and a model. Samson is essentially a big mirror to Israel. He's their leader. It will be. Essentially, what he does is he shows them exactly what they are like. In fact, one commentator put it, he's like a cartoon figure. Slightly exaggerated, but very near like them. So look, Samson and Israel, they're both these things. They're both created by God. They're both set apart from God. Samson was a Nazarite. Again, read number six if you want to see what those, that vow meant. They're both self-absorbed, Israel and Samson, both adulterous. Samson may not be able to say no to any woman. It's a total weakness of his. His line at the end of verse three literally reads, she is right in my eyes. It's very interesting, if you turn to the last sentence, as Ash read out at the beginning of the service, it's the same line for Israel. They did everything in their eyes as they saw fit, essentially. But it gets worse. You look at the lion episode. Samson, he keeps everything to himself. 
He doesn't tell anyone how God gave him the strength. He looks to get praise for himself, just like Israel in the honey episode. Samson literally turns away from the path, the text says. The path of the Nazarite, if you like. Goes to the carcass, breaking his vow. That set apartness, he removes himself. Compromises himself, just like Israel. In the riddle episode, Samson is self-absorbed. All he does there is he cares about himself. And the power that he can exercise over the 30 guests within the wedding feast. He wants to control. And when it all backfires, what does he do? He whines and he grumbles. Just like Israel. He's a mirror. The question I guess is, is he a mirror for you? Do you look into his kind of self-absorbed life and just see some glimmers of yourself? Do you see how easily he can be used by God at one moment and then turn away from God's path the next? Do you see Samson who subdues that message that ought to be proclaimed? Look what he did to a lion. He should be proclaiming how God gave him the strength, but he keeps it quiet. Is Samson an embarrassing mirror to Israel? Yes. Isn't he an embarrassing mirror to you and me? Samson is also a model, though. That is, he's, in a sense, a preview of salvation through one. All the other judges, they come with an army. Apart from Gideon, 300. God whittled it down. But now God works salvation through one man. If you like, he's a picture, a type of one to come, whose name is Jesus. Of course, Samson is flawed and Christ is not, but he begins a work, a work of bringing distinction and division from the Philistines and God's people. And though the chapter is this depressing episode of Samson going down, literally, and it's only in three times in our, in our translation, but five times in the original, he goes down, 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 down. It's this spiral down in chapter 15. It's the same spiral of decline that we've seen in Israel again and again and again. Make sure it's not you. And despite that, God is sovereignly overruling and the path of salvation in one is beginning. Chapter 14 tells the story of Samson's marriage, but it's a story of him trampling on the word of God. And in all that, Samson is both a mirror and a model. His life and death are no better. And we're going to look at those very quickly now. So we get to his career, and it's marked by compromise, essentially, in the word of God. Chapter 15. Let me summarize it very briefly. First, we see Samson doing something, what he wants to do. First, one to eight. And then secondly, we see Samson doing something God wants him to do. Very begrudgingly. In the following verses, nine through to the end. So in verse one to eight, he does what he wants to do. He wants his wife back, but the best man essentially has her, or friend. He turns down the prettier sister. And don't think that suddenly Samson is all kind of, you know, playing good, good here, being virtuous. He just wants to be in control. Like anyone in an addiction, he just wants the power. Essentially, he is true to his convictions throughout the opening verses. As he says, I have, to get right, I have a right to get even with the Philistines. 
So what does he do? It's pretty genius, but pretty horrible. He gets the foxes, puts torches, and takes down their whole industry, essentially. You think of a parallel in taking out the square mile of London. It's pretty devastating, isn't it? But why does he do that? He's become a law unto himself, hasn't he? He's moved from rejecting God's word, as we saw in chapter 14, to now essentially creating his own law. He's a law unto himself, we might say. Whatever he feels, whatever he wants, he'll do that. I wonder if that sounds familiar. How you live, essentially, is what you believe. We see him living out what he knows to be true, what he he thinks in his own heart and mind. Samson thinks nothing of God, so he looks to himself for all his decisions. All the actions of his life are basically his gut feelings. I'll do what I want, when I want it. And look at the main episodes of Samson. He just follows his senses, doesn't he? The torches on the fox's tails are sending him to... It's just revenge. He's seeing red. Killing the thousand men with a fresh... I love the, type, the term fresh jawbone. I'm not sure how fresh it was. Let's hope it wasn't too fresh. A fresh jawbone of a donkey. So he's simply following his own agenda here. In the first eight verses of chapter 15. But although he keeps following his senses in the following verses, the agenda shifts. He's not just going by his nature like in the first verses. There's a supernatural work going on. As the agenda moves much more to God's agenda. Samson is still self-absorbed. So I love that. It's not very good, is it? But in verse 16 of chapter 15, essentially he sings a song about himself. After a victory that God won for him. Think of the contrast between Deborah who sings a whole song about God in chapter 5. So Samson is living out his convictions. But he is beginning that which God has promised. He is delivering the Israelites from the Philistines. As he promised back in chapter 13 verse 5. So although Samson is rejecting the rule of God, compromising the word of God in his life, he cannot thwart God's sovereign overruling in and amongst his life. And that is why I often pray with the elders. I prayed it before the service when we gathered together. And I thank God that he's willing to work through us, to work in us, but also despite us. What I mean by that, it is such a great comfort to know that God can sovereignly work in and through our lives, but also despite our lives and our failings and our messes up. Let's go fourthly to the last point. Let's look to his death in chapter 16. Gosh, I wish I had more time, and not this week, but next week, but we, we don't. And here we see him trusting in the word of God. Here's the summary. Samson goes to Gaza, takes a prostitute. He gives up the secret of his strength to Delilah. He's captured and he dies. That's a brief summary of chapter 16. Why the story about the prostitute though? In those early verses, cast your eyes down. Just read them very quickly to yourselves now. It's just three verses. Two verses, sorry. No, sorry, three verses.
Why is that story there, you think? It's extraordinary. We know the word of God is optional to Samson, don't we? But like any persistent sinner, he's getting more and more reckless. You notice his recklessness here? As he ignores God's word, he's following his senses here, but it, it leads him to very dangerous places. Going into a fortified city at the beginning of chapter 16, knowing that he's probably the most wanted man in the whole area, and then having to remove a city gate. I can't imagine how heavy that would be. But the geography tells us he then carried it 40 miles to a hill near Hebron. Essentially, it seems like he wants to get caught. But why is it here? I think it's probably because it shows us that the way Samson will find his demise will not be in his strength. A fortified city is nothing. The way that he will find his demise is his weakness. City gates are no match for him, but the lap of a lady is. A lady named Delilah, we get to her, it means her name actually means night. Samson lays his head on the night, in the night, on the bed of the night. His recklessness gets to its most extreme, and it is his great weakness. He's probably on an absolute high as you read through chapter 16, thinking how risky this is. Would he be caught? He's always got away with it before. The thrill of danger is immense. He knew what Delilah wanted, but he could not bear to even disappoint her, even though he knew it would bring about his demise. She was leading him to his ruin. And don't think that this love at all, this is just self-serving in relationships. And we see it all around us in the world. They cut his hair Not that his hair mystically held any power, but rather, as you see in verse 20, it's very important, verse 20. He did not know that the Lord had left him. That's the key. There's so much I want to say, but I do need to finish. I've got about 20 seconds. Samson gets to his lowest point at the end of chapter 16, quite literally, doesn't he, as he's crushed by the temple roof. Let me show you some contrasts, if you like, through the whole of the story. He used to be a great eye man. Do you know what I mean by that? It was his great downfall looking at ladies. But now he's blind. He used to be a Nazarite. That's someone set apart for God. But now he's utterly ordinary, bound, weak within this Philistine temple. He used to be free from any tie. He could do whatever he wanted. And you see that throughout chapter 14 and 15. And yet now he's bound. He used to be the great joker. Think of the riddle. But now he becomes the great joke. And they make him perform for him. If chapter 15 showed us the fruit of doing what you want in the short term. Samson seems to get away with everything, doesn't he? He seems to be in control. And you kind of think, hey, why don't we just go out and live life in London and have a great time and everything be easy. We'll get away with everything. And kind of that's what 15 shows you. Well, chapter 16, I think, shows us the long-term fruit of doing what you want and ignoring God's rule. 
That is, you just end up just as God tells you you would end up if you do what you want, if you follow your senses. And for Samson, he was crushed, and it cost him his life. I guess we need to ask, what will it take you to trust God's word? Samson lives by his senses. In a sense, he's the reluctant saviour right until his last breath. I did actually put down there that final kind of application point. Samson is like Jesus, but he may be like Jesus in that salvation comes through one, but Jesus is a willing saviour. And he's a willing saviour from all our foes. He will save us from the greatest enemies of our lives. And it is our call, I guess, as we get to the end of a a story like this, to trust him. Yes, like Samson, the one who reached out his hands, as Samson did in the temple. But Jesus reached out his arms. And as he did so, he didn't bring down a temple. He brought down sin and death. As he died on that cross for your sin in your place. Trust him and him alone. Let's pray as we close. Heavenly Father, as we examine the life of Samson, it is, again, revolting. There's so much in there which ought to and rightly disgust us. And yet, I guess many of us are ashamed to think in our own hearts and minds right now that there are glimmers of Samson in us. But Heavenly Father, thank you that there is a, in a sense, a greater Samson, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came as one to offer salvation to all who would trust in him. The one who reached out his arms and brought down sin and death. Lord, please help us to trust him and to know that life in him, living in response to him and all that he has done, trusting in his word is not only a good way, it's the only way to life. Life now, but life eternal. Lord, Samson pushes us forward. It points us to the Lord Jesus May our hearts and our minds be thrilled with the Lord Jesus right now, I pray. Amen.